Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, Episode 13, The State, Part 2, The Church and the Army. Yes, this is Part 2 of an episode taking a look at the major institutions which made up the Byzantine state. The original podcast I'd planned for ended up being too long, so I've split it into two. If somehow you missed Part 1, then stop this episode now and go back to iTunes or thehistoryofbyzantium.wordpress.com or wherever you go and listen to that first. Welcome back. Did you enjoy it? Good. We now move on to the church, an institution that had changed out of all recognition from the state it was in 300 years before. As you already know, the Roman world had undergone a transformation of religious belief. Estimates suggest that at the time of Constantine, Christians would likely have made up only 10% of the population. But with official patronage, the church grew and traditional cults wilted. By the time Julian the Apostate had come and gone, the momentum was with the Christians. The message of personal redemption from the one true God was irresistible, and those who converted opportunistically raised children who accepted their faith as the truth. There were still pagans in the 6th century. The intelligentsia in the cities who refused to abandon their classical heritage, or those out in the countryside who preserved their traditional customs. But for the overwhelming majority, Christianity was here to stay, and it now guided their daily rituals and behaviour. The increasing acceptance of Christian definitions of morality meant the end of gladiatorial contests and a reduction in divorce and infanticide. Priests were forbidden to marry after being ordained, and the church's teaching on sexual morals saw gymnasiums fall from fashion and the theatre come under steady attack. Christian tradition strongly condemned killing, which led to an intellectual struggle over the role of soldiers in war or judicial executions. 
in the East for some time, it was still considered wise for a soldier to do penance and abstain from communion for a number of years. Jesus' concern with the poor was taken to heart, and churches became increasingly associated with feeding, housing, and clothing the indigent. The church was able to afford this because of a steady stream of donations and bequests which ballooned over the centuries into large tracts of land, whose produce was often protected from the taxman. In Alexandria, for example, the church maintained a merchant fleet and was active in commerce and banking. Local bishops often wielded power which rivaled the provincial governors. After all, through baptism and excommunication, he had power over who joined or left a community. And by looking after the poor, sick and widowed, he gained a moral authority. Bishops could be major urban builders, with churches being their obvious first priority, and they often had better reach into their communities than the governor, as clergy would evangelize out in the countryside and were usually more trusted than state officials. Even secular legal disputes could be brought before him if both parties agreed. Under state sponsorship, the church had grown a parallel bureaucratic structure, with local clergy reporting to their regional bishop, who would report to the metropolitan bishop, who reported to the patriarchs at Thessalonica, Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. The bishop's state stipend only added to their wealth, and while it's tempting to see this as a drain on the state towards an unproductive sector, the church was increasingly playing a vital role in public life. Many churches set up orphanages and hospitals and acted as ombudsmen for the poor. The calendar of Byzantine life now revolved around increasingly Christian festivals. In Constantinople, there would be regular public ceremonial and liturgy to mark feast days commemorating saints and martyrs, previous emperors, bad earthquakes, and so on. Many were marked with solemn processions with patriarch and emperor joining in. Out in the countryside, many pagan fairs and festivals were now given Christian sanction so that their functions of exchange and feast could continue under the eyes of the church. The proto-Easter and Christmas festivals were celebrated annually, with the emperor processing through the capital, visiting churches, and taking part in Mass. Church services were a daily event, with many of the capital's churches holding at least four a day. Worship of the Virgin Mary had become a feature of city life, with former Empress Ilia Pulcheria setting up an important shrine to her at Blacanae. Particular icons of the Virgin and Child were honoured and special feasts in her name were commemorated annually. Icons and relics were important parts of Byzantine worship. I jokingly referred to the number of items which Constantine claimed were in the plinth of the huge statue in his forum back in episode 10, but to the Byzantines it was no laughing matter. The bones and other objects of saints or even biblical figures were found and placed in churches for the faithful to worship. Pilgrimage to holy sites, and certainly not just to the Holy Land, were common and could help boost a local economy if someone famous had lived there. 
These holy men were part of a tradition of withdrawing oneself from society to be alone with God. Ascetics had long set this lonely example during the early years of Christianity, but as time had passed, more and more came to join the growing monasteries, where their withdrawal from the community could be best organised and protected. The monasteries cultivated their land to feed themselves, and many monks would develop trades to help provide for their new community. The monasteries could gain fearsome reputations as defenders of their faith. In Palestine, the monks of St. Sabas were notorious for enforcing anti-pagan laws which the state had not pursued rigorously enough, on some occasions violently. Around Constantinople there were at least 80 monasteries by this time. The most famous was the Monastery of the Sleepless Monks, so-called because they kept up a constant hymn of praise to God at all times. You may recall Anastasius' struggles with his various patriarchs back in episodes 5 and 6. The sleepless monks acted as a kind of religious pressure group, urging their patriarch to fight the corner of orthodoxy against the emperor's monophysite leanings. The final thing to say on the subject of the church is that one of their practices had had a dramatic effect on the life of the city, and that's the burial of the dead. For the Greeks and Romans, both cremation and burial were practiced. However, the Jews buried their dead, with God setting the example by burying Moses. Adding to this tradition was the Christian belief in the resurrection of the body once Jesus returned. So the burial of the dead now became a necessary religious ceremony and required cemeteries to accommodate the deceased. When Constantinople was expanded by Constantine's successors, the graveyards which had lain outside the walls had to be incorporated into the city. The construction workers were apparently very fearful of desecrating any remains. We now turn to the army. Rome's legions had systematically defeated her enemies until no one was left in the Mediterranean to match them. Slowly over time... Roman citizens had avoided the harsh military life to the point when barbarian armies were able to overrun the West and relieve the Romans of their empire. The Byzantine survival was due in no small part to the story I related to you in episodes 2 through 6. Leo was able to outmaneuver the German core of his army and use the Isaurians to prevent them from taking control of the empire. Zeno then agreed to give Theodoric Italy in order to remove the final Gothic horde from the Balkans, and then the Isaurians were themselves crushed by Anastasius' armies, finally allowing a native Byzantine corps to ensure that the military were more loyal to the state than to their own generals. Anastasius's careful management allowed the army to be paid adequately too, and the successful conclusion to the war with Persia in 506 demonstrated the healthy state of the Byzantine military. It's worth saying, though, that Byzantines were by no means running every aspect of their armed forces. It remained the case that many talented natives would stick to their estates, enroll in the imperial bureaucracy, or become a bishop before they would ever resort to joining the army. 
By jumping ahead slightly in our story, this point is made well by an ethnic breakdown of the Emperor Justinian's leading generals. There was Mundo, a Gepid, Sitas and Narses, Armenians, Chilbudius, a Slav, and Bessus, a Goth. To counterbalance this, though, Belisarius and Germanus were both Balkan-born Byzantines. Settlement within the empire could still be obtained through offers of military service, and so many foreign-born men filled the ranks. Estimates suggest that between 300,000 and 350,000 soldiers were employed by the Byzantines in the 6th century. The army was by far the largest consumer of the empire's revenues, somewhere between one-half and three-quarters of expenditure. In addition to their wages, the soldiers also received cash bonuses on the accession of a new emperor and on every fifth anniversary of his reign. These bonuses could amount to a whole year's pay and were considered a necessary expedient to maintaining soldiers' loyalty to their emperor. The troops were recruited in various ways. The hereditary principle which Diocletian had insisted on was still in effect where able-bodied boys were born. Volunteers could still be found, particularly after Anastasius increased their pay, and of course in times of crisis the state retained the right to conscript. Foreign allies also fought alongside the army and were now known as federate troops rather than the old title of auxiliaries. The distinction being made because the federate troops were commanded by their own leaders. This could, of course, affect their loyalties. If you still remember Vitalian's revolt against Anastasius, he was greatly aided by the defection of his federated Bulgars. The disposition of the empire's armies remained as it had been since the formal divide of the empire into eastern and western halves. There were two types of soldier. The Limitanii were the border troops who lived off the land near the Danube or in the east, and then behind them were the field armies, each with its own general or magister militum. There were five field armies of between fifteen and 25,000 men, one each for Illyricum and Thrace, one for the east, and two precental armies based near Constantinople who could be deployed in either direction. Now, when I began researching the history of Byzantium, I know one of the first questions I wanted to know the answer to was what did the Byzantine army do about the Huns? Sure, Attila's empire was long gone by now, but surely after the devastation they wrought, there had to be some kind of military adaption. After all, isn't that how Rome had conquered the Mediterranean? By adapting their military tactics and weaponry based on the enemies they were fighting? The answer, pleasingly, is yes. They had adapted. The key unit in any Byzantine army were now the mounted horse archers. The complexity of the Huns' composite bow made it hard to adopt them quickly. The Goths and Gepids, for example, rode in Attila's train for a decade or two, but didn't learn enough to imitate it. The Byzantines, though, with a professional armed force and munitions factories, were a different story. The Byzantine cavalry were now trained to fire their bows while riding and imitate the tactics of their most fearsome enemy. 
They added body armor for both man and horse, and a short lance to allow for the more traditional line of attack. Naturally, though, there was a difference in quality when comparing Hun bowmen to their Byzantine counterparts. The Huns grew up in the saddle. As children, they would learn to ride in all manner of conditions at speed and learn what would look to us like circus tricks for amusement. By the time they were old enough to wield a bow, the riding part was second nature. Even the most horse-loving Byzantine didn't spend days in the saddle, so it took a tremendous amount of training for the Byzantine cavalry to learn how to ride and fire and reload and fire again, all while staying at a safe distance from the enemy. It seems that it took more than a year of training for a Byzantine horse archer to be ready for combat, and of course, he would still be no match for a man from the steppes. However, against a German, a Slav, or a Persian, he would be quite formidable. The skills of a mounted archer were perishable, though, especially for those who hadn't been excellent riders since childhood. A modern comparison would be the difference between pistol and rifle shooting. The retention of skills is quite different. Without regular monthly practice, the average pistol shooter can lose accuracy quickly, while a well-trained rifleman only needs an annual refresher. The mounted archers were like pistol shooters. They needed regular practice to maintain their skills. The instruction of new recruits and the practice of unit and formation tactics was, of course, part of the life of a professional army. And that professionalism is what made the Byzantines, as it had the Romans, a match for any opponent. Foreign troops were more often than not unprofessional. They might have no formal training, or the skills they did have could atrophy while they were out working in the fields. Enemy soldiers would often only know one particular skill learned from their people. Now, any man can swing a sword, but Goths with their lances, the Alans with their heavy cavalry, or the Huns with their bows would generally stick to their people's preferred method of fighting. Professional Byzantine soldiers could be trained in multiple techniques, depending on who or where they were fighting. This flexible skill set gave the empire a huge advantage over foes who had to rely on tribal levies, freebooters, or impressed peasants to fight. Those same soldiers would then have to scavenge for food from nearby fields to maintain themselves while the Byzantine army was well supplied. The discipline of a professional army, long held as a Roman virtue, was still an advantage over enemy volunteers. Another question you might ask, then, is why the empire was constantly under attack if its army was supposedly so superior. One answer is, of course, what we've been looking at over the last five episodes. The Persians, the Arabs, the Slavs, the Bulgars and the Germans were by now significant nations right on the border, eyeing Byzantine wealth. The field armies couldn't be everywhere at once, and so regular raids took place, but since the death of Attila, they had always been beaten back. The other reason for the constant conflict was a change in Roman strategy. I say Roman rather than Byzantine, because it's not clear when this change took place. Certainly, once the crisis of the 3rd century kicked in, things began to change, 
but it's possible to see its origins even before that. The old Republican and early Empire tactics of the army were to hack away at an opponent, knowing that heavy casualties could be absorbed because the enemy would eventually turn, flee, and be cut down. The destruction of the enemy army would mean peace for the Romans. That situation changed as soon as there were more than one enemy on the frontier. And when the seemingly inexhaustible supply of Roman manpower began to dry up. Now that there were enemies on every front, a mass battle was not an ideal situation for the empire. As had happened at Adrianople, the loss of a whole army could have disastrous consequences, not to mention being hugely expensive. By the 6th century, the Byzantines knew that the loss of one battle was not irreversible, but the loss of thousands of well-trained soldiers was. In a world with multiple enemies, the Byzantines also recognised that today's enemy could be tomorrow's ally. To destroy a whole people might only make their neighbours stronger. The head-on assault of the old legions was therefore replaced by the tactics of outflanking, outmanoeuvring, ambushing, and avoiding a last stand, if at all possible. Naturally, cavalry was still key, giving commanders flexible options and the speed of manoeuvre which this new world demanded. However, infantry was still needed. Horses don't win battles in all terrain, and as we shall see, the ability of Byzantine troops to fight in all terrains, in formation, was an important asset. A new unit within the army were the Bacalarii. This term originated as the personal guards attached to a commander in the field. But by the 6th century, these had become substantial retinues of men, loyal to their commander personally, and in a way previewing the medieval role of knights and their lords. I should really talk about the Byzantine navy, which was of course crucial to defence and trade. But sources are few when it comes to matters of the sea. The Roman snobbery about soldiers being the real heroes of war continued long into the Byzantine period. For now, though, the situation remains as you know it. The Byzantines dominate the eastern Mediterranean, since coming to terms with the Vandals, who controlled the routes around Italy and to the west. One more thing before we wrap up. One listener found it amusing that back in episode 4, I didn't comment on the fact that one of the commanders of the Precental Armies was called John the Hunchback. These nicknames, instead of surnames, are of course historians' shorthand to keep straight the hundreds of characters from any particular period. I can only assume poor John did not have the best posture, and I have no more information than his name. His fellow commander, John the Scythian, doesn't need explanation, right? Because you all know there are a people called the Scythians. But I did think it was worth mentioning that nicknames are going to be a common reference point throughout the history of Byzantium, just as they were in the history of Rome, where a Caligula or Caracalla were very much not called that during their lifetime. Bishops in particular seem to have amusing nicknames, with Peter the Horse, Timothy the Weasel, and Paul the Stammerer all featuring in our story. 
So ends our tour of the Byzantine Empire as it stood at the death of Anastasius in 518. I know it's a lot to take in, but hopefully the broad outlines are clear. The empire is of course now confined to the eastern Mediterranean and surrounded by enemies on all sides. But there are potential allies too, especially those who share the empire's Christian beliefs. Christianity has brought massive social and political change which are at work transforming the empire's culture and daily life. Despite these changes, though, there is a core of stability which the empire carried forward from its Roman past. Persia aside, the Byzantines were the strongest state in Europe and the Near East. This was down to their organisation, their professional armies and their tax system. The Vandals and Goths, for example, doled out land to their armies rather than paying them a salary. These land-based armies are harder to control because individuals now have less incentive to fight as a whole. It's a lot more effort to discipline someone who isn't relying on you to pay them. The Byzantines were wealthy and organised and their population was growing, as we saw back in episode 6 when we approached the final years of Anastasius' reign. The major internal problem the empire faced was disunity, owing to the seemingly intractable theological dispute over monophysitism. Vitalian's rebellion showed that religious issues could lead to civil war, something the emperors would naturally want to do everything in their power to prevent. That's the situation we're dealing with, as Anastasius exits the stage and his successors step forward. Believe me, the story which follows is one of the great dramas in Roman history, and you won't want to miss it. I am, however, going to give myself three weeks to get my ducks in a row before the narrative moves forward. I'd like to stick to a two-week schedule from then on, so I just need some more time to make that happen. Thank you so much for listening, and for your feedback on iTunes, Facebook, and at thehistoryofbyzantium.wordpress.com. And just in case you weren't listening, this is part two of our look at the state. If you missed part one, go and listen now. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.